Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I'm sitting down with Maggie Winter, founder and CEO of AIR, that's A-Y-R standing for all year round. 10 years ago, AIR launched with a focus on versatile, comfortable, easy-wearing style essentials for women, including LA-made denim. And in 2022, the brand expanded into menswear, and it now does $50 million in annual revenue. I wanted to ask Maggie what's driving the brand's growth, which has not come at the expense of profitability. I also want to know if further category expansion is in the cards as the brand embarks on its next decade. I'm seeing belts and ball caps, but what about bags and shoes? Welcome, Maggie. Thanks, Jill. I'm so happy to have you here. Talk to me. Before we get into it, the men's business, is it blowing up? I hear great things. The men's business is so exciting. It's the fastest growing part of the company now. It's growing three times over last year. And it is so fun because it's like getting to do it all again, but smarter and faster. Is it a totally different approach or is she shopping for him? Is it a mix of all the above? It's definitely a mix. And in fact, we saw um, as the holidays approached, we certainly saw a spike in the business as um, our our existing customer base was purchasing more menswear. But it really has been a mix. Amazing. Well, tell me what, let's walk back. Tell me what happened 10 years ago. I know that you have a great background in J. Crew, which I can see some J. Crew influence happening. Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You tell me. But tell me what happened 10 years ago. What opportunity you saw? I was so lucky to begin my career at J. Crew in 2005. And I was there from 2005 towards the end of 2012, almost eight years. And they were eight really exciting years to be at that company. And, and uh, the people who worked there were just phen- phenomenal. I had a great experience. And while I was there, I got to learn from probably the best merchant uh, of all time, Mickey Drexler. And Mickey was, I love the way he taught. And I just had these notebooks and I would write down everything he said. And for a long time, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, over the years, you start to see patterns and, and you start to see a few of these cycles. And I loved learning about how to express brand through product. I just loved working with product. Yes. Oh my gosh. Is there a whole school of Mickey Drexler? I feel like there's probably this amazing alumni from that came from under his wing. Oh, absolutely. From his time at the Gap and Old Navy Banana Republic to J. Crew and Madewell. And of course, he's still, you know, creating brand and, and building great product. So there's there is totally a web of uh, like, you know, society of uh, Mickey students out there. And many of them have created great brands. It's awesome. Well, you decided to go it alone. You're launching a brand. There's a a large denim focus. Was denim the first product out of the gate? And and explain the denim focus to me. Where, where did you, again, see white space? 
Well, and to be totally honest, I don't know if in the apparel industry, white space really exists. You know, I think about uh, the clothes that we wear every day probably have existed for a long time and for good reason. Although, you know what I think about? Remember um, when WeWork's documentary came out, Adam Newman, was he had his two companies that he'd tried beforehand. One was knee pads for babies and another was collapsible high heels. So I guess there are still things you could create in this world, but that's not what we do. That's not what I do. Yes, I I actually hadn't seen this. <laughs> what? Uh, it's it's uh, yeah yeah. Uh, you know, maybe someday I'll take off. That's not our space. We aren't inventing product categories, but what we do want to do is make the best version of the clothes that we live in every day. And Air, when I started it, was really intended to be an alternative to fast fashion. 2012 was kind of the height of the zarification of the apparel industry. There were reports coming out that they had a two-week turnaround to market from, you know, concept to market. They could they could produce things and get them in stores that quickly. And so you had so much trend and um, and quickness. And I felt that after having studied 32 different seasons, that the cycle of reinventing things over and over again was really just wasteful. It was creating a lot of excess and that usually there's a favorite, um, a favorite item that you return to over and over again. Yes. I actually started, um, my, my first exploration for air was a scrapbook. That's where it started. I made a scrapbook and with like, you know, glue stick and scissors and magazine cutouts. And on each page, there was one item And I would pull from paintings or photographs and, um, you know, look at iconic items over time and how fresh and current they still felt. And there was menswear in the scrapbook and womenswear because the best pieces really are versatile. And, you know, when you look at a a great striped shirt, a great pair of jeans, a great broken indigo button down, those sorts of things translate decade after decade, trend after trend, culture all across different cultures. And that's really the apparel I was interested in making. Yes. Well, as a, a merchant, merchandising background, I would think it would pay to have kind of left brain, light, right brain, kind of both of them. D- did you see when you're, I'm going to start the business, I need you, did you know you were going to be CEO or did you say, I need a designer or like, what were the partners that you knew that you needed to get this off the ground in the way that you wanted? Air had such an unconventional beginning. It's just proof that you can create a brand or a business from so many different approaches and so many different backgrounds. I did not come from a business background. I didn't come from a finance background. I didn't come from a design background. And you just named those key roles that you need at an apparel company. And I really didn't have any of them. (laughs) (laughs) But what a merchant is good at doing is sort of being the center of a hub, being the hub of of all those functions. And and they always taught us, Mickey would teach us that the merchant is the business owner. You're like the shopkeeper. And the person that you think about the most as a merchant is your customer. And you will figure out how to build the team or get the resources to deliver the best product for your customer. And it's kind of like uh, Jeff Goldblum says in 
um, Jurassic Park where it's like life finds a way. So yes. if, you, if you, I think entrepreneurs, most entrepreneurs could probably relate to the idea of when you have something that you really want to create, you will probably find a way. And so, yes, we found people who could help us um, find the best wash master in the country who turned out to be um, this fellow living in Kentucky. And we found, I think, one of the best denim factories, um, it, wash facilities and sewing facilities in Los Angeles. Okay. And we've built this really incredible team over time. And uh, everybody comes with a tremendous amount of expertise. That's awesome. Tell me, I would think to be able to attract such talent, um, you were able to pay them great, <laughs> in, in, you know. In line with 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 the industry, but tell me, um, did you go in? Was this self funded at out of the gate? Um, did you was fundraising a part of the kind of go to market strategy? I can tell you that in twenty twenty four, we do we do uh, we are able to attract great talent and compensate them well. But that wasn't the case uh, ten years ago when we were first starting the business. Air started it, it you know making things is hard. And anybody who does it probably does it because they love it. And I am one of those people, for sure. Um, it is not easy. And AIR started without a big name or with, with deep pockets or, or um, you know, a giant following. We were able to take an opportunity um, to... Uh, I was actually hired. Here's the, here's the, the short story. I was hired to create a brand within a bigger company. And Air was the brand that I created um, there. And in our, our, after our first year in business, that parent company said, well, we're not going to fund it anymore. And so if you can finance this, you can go spin out and be independent. And for maybe one second, a little <laughs> a few questions flashed in my mind, like, how do you do that? <laughs> who will invest? How, what are the steps? And I just, okay, that's what we'll do. And the very next day I started that process. We had three months to go finance a company that hadn't been formed yet and figure out the separation of assets, negotiate it all, build an identical website, not miss a day of business on our existing site, find an office, a team, kind of figure out everything that we were going to need. Um, and it was very much trial by fire. Yes. You had already fallen in love with the, com the company you had built in such a short time. Yeah. I had definitely fallen in love with the brand and had just believed in it so much and didn't want to see it. I, I believed in its potential and uh, I didn't want to see it go away. That makes sense. So were you able to retain some of the team from the original Yes, we spun out with a very small team, and initially we just did a very small round of funding. We did a less than a million dollars of friends, family, angel investors, um, and that allowed us to just get started. In the process of putting together that round, I met uh, a company that became our Series A investor, a strategic investor, and they were an apparel company with um, three great brands that we would have all heard of. Um, and they took a minority stake in us. And that was pretty much the end of the meaningful investment that AIR took. So we raised about $5 million. And it's, uh, you know, that, that was a time when there was a lot of 
news in the headlines about venture-backed consumer businesses. And there were a lot of inspiring stories being told about founders. Um, and air was just a bit quieter and we just didn't go that route. Yes. That when you said 2012 was the era of like Zara, I was thinking, but it's the DTC like heyday era. Definitely. The NYC DTC scene was something. You really felt like everybody, everybody that you had gone to college with or that you used to sit next to at work was starting a brand, putting together a deck and raising money. And it felt exciting to witness. Um, but we were always a little bit outside of that. And the truth is that having dipped my toe in that world, it, it, it just wasn't the place for me. I felt so much more comfortable around product, brand, storytelling. And I, um, I, it was a great education. And it also told me that's probably not where Ayers $50 million is going to come from um, because it wasn't my strength or my experience or my flow state. Yes. Well, tell me about the investment for, for your fun, funds that you were able to secure because you talked about um, basically you're not putting out trends. Um, it sounds like you're probably the perfect t-shirt, the perfect button down. I'm not sure how you spun it, but did you talk about your marketing strategy out of the gate? If you put a lot of money into these digital channels and also what you were putting out there about the brand, if it was about cost per wear and things that, that kind of really speaks to your, your focus. Yeah, I should have talked to you about 15 years ago and I've learned all of these ideas. But the truth was that I didn't know them 10 years ago. And my background really wasn't in marketing or in business or in finance. In school, I studied English, art history and film because those were the most fun classes. And getting to go watch four hours of movies on a Friday and then write a paper about, I thought that was a great time. Well, look at some old paintings, read, a, read some books it was great. It did not teach me a lot about unit economics or supply and demand, certainly nothing about financial statements or P&L. I had never made a deck. And in fact, the first time that I did need to make a deck, I thought about storyboarding in film class and I drew out pictures <laughs> of each slide. And, uh, and that was how I approached making a deck. So I didn't have probably the right um, the perfect pedigree for approaching these business problems. But what I did have was a real interest in um, what was happening culturally at the moment and a good instinct for how, uh, how consumers were living. And I love words and pictures. I still do. And it took us a long time, I think, to find out how to market the brand. At first, Facebook was a mystery. Instagram was a mystery to me. I don't even have an Instagram today. Air does, but I don't. And so it was, uh, that wasn't um, the first place that we had great success. I would say actually the first place that we really had great success was in making catalogs. And that is just kind of not that different from making that scrapbook way back in the day. It's just, you know, putting together pictures that tell a story. That's so smart. And your photography is beautiful. I mean, it's very inspiring. To me, it makes you want to shop. But is that where you were putting the money in the creative? Well, at first we did. 
And I think a lot of people could probably relate. At the beginning, you have a vision of what you want it to become and what it will be one day. Um, And we probably overspent a little bit on creative resources, but pretty quickly I could see that the things that customers or audience were responding to the most were actually just snapshots that I was taking on a little film camera I used to walk around uh, and keep in my purse. I had a little um, Ricoh, Japanese point-and-shoot 35-millimeter film camera that I'd gotten on eBay, and it's my favorite one. It fits in your hand so nicely, and I would just carry it around with me whenever I bopped around the city or traveled. And those snapshots would perform better than any of the, you know, carefully created, retouched, studio shot, beautifully lit imagery that we were investing in at the time. And that was interesting to me. That told me something. And over time, we were able to develop more and more identity around that, real, you know, it's a buzzword, but I can't think of a better one, authenticity. Yes. I mean, you're so ahead of your time with that in terms of, of imagery. And you, we hear that that's resonating on TikTok and why people are loving TikTok. I mean, you were slow to get on Instagram. I would assume not yet on TikTok. Maybe the brand? <laughs> the brand is on TikTok. I'm not really on it. And I do love to be behind the camera instead of front, in front of it. So I loved actually taking pictures. That was that was really fun work. And yeah, so exa- you're you're right. We 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 found um, a way to uh, we found a way to accomplish the thing that had to be done that was fun and true to us and a little bit perhaps unconventional at the time. We when you don't have a lot of resources, it forces a different kind of creativity. And we spent too much of that investment that we that we raised. We spent too much of it on product. We made too many things and um, we didn't have an audience that was big enough. And a lot of the things we were making really weren't a market fit. And they weren't really aligned with that thesis of the perfect, you know, essential. Some of the things we were making were tricky, very dry cleanery, you know, (laughs) specific. They were cool, but they were specific. And so um, I learned quickly that Um, slowing down, making fewer things, owning them well, and showing them really, really well was going to be key to our success. Yes. Well, when you mentioned catalogs, it got me to thinking about the pandemic because I know that people were just so excited to get their mail and catalogs did well. Um, Were you doing that pre-pandemic? And also, did you figure out your... um, the surplus of inventory problem pre-pandemic? Because that, again, would have put you ahead of most others. We did figure out the surplus inventory. And and a big part of figuring out the extra inventory was stopping making it. So we really slowed down, all but suspended our development. We audited the styles that we had already invested in and looked at the product we had already made and started to try to market those. And so going into the pandemic, we had two styles that we really focused on and we became very good product marketers. We have, it was one of the joys of getting to make your own business is you kind of get to pick some, you end up doing all the jobs and some of the jobs are really fun. One of the jobs I think is really fun is naming products. It's like, uh, you know, your childhood fantasy of getting to name the nail polish colors or something. And so naming products and naming 
colors and washes. That was really fun. And it turned out that that was a great differentiator and made it easy to product market. So we became pretty good product marketers before the pandemic, but only with a couple of products. And at that time, we had two products that were really good and lots of products that the market had said, no, thank you. We don't really need that. And so we were really focusing on these couple of products going into the pandemic. Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to tell me the name of them. <laughs> oh, so sorry. What are their names? I'm dying to know. I think it's- one, one is called The Deep End. And uh, we had a fairy godmother there. Oprah actually wore this shirt and she wore it for all kinds of things. She wore it on TV. She wore it on her website. She wore it on her Instagram. She wore it on her magazine. And so, and she actually picked it as one of her favorite things a few years ago. And so that was like a very big, you know, thing for us. And then the second style was a jean called the pop. And we still sell this jean today. It is so comfortable. It's made in LA and it's just like, you know, it's got four-way stretch. It just feels so good on. And those two products, the deep end and the pop, it had uh, had started to gain some traction. But in the pandemic, um, our, the first phase of the pandem- pandemic, like for everybody, was terrifying. And we had no idea how long it was going to last. Yes. And um, we had done, prior to the pandemic, I had done a little test, a little catalog test, made two catalogs with my friend Amelia. And she... Um, is a great writer, very clever. And we sat down and said, okay, well, if you were going to make a catalog, what would you make it look? Neither of us had ever made one before, but we're both children of the nineties. And, uh, we both had fond memories of Delia's and of even old J crew catalogs. And so we made our new version of the scrapbook. I think at this point we're on Pinterest. There's some digital element to, to the scrapbooking, but we made our little inspiration board and we even put in our very first catalog, we put paper dolls oh, that nice. you could, <laughs> where you could, you know, actually make outfits because who didn't love Cher's fantasy closet and Clueless? Totally. So cute. As it turns out, probably not the best use of a page count, <laughs> but uh, we loved, you know, we loved exploring the idea. And so when the pandemic happened and it was like someone had turned off the faucet and business just stopped. And we weren't sure if we were going to survive it because we were a very small company at that time. I thought, you know, let's dust off the test from those um, catalogs and see if there's something there. And I photographed, you know, wearing masks, we photographed some friends um, wearing the clothes and made that into a catalog. And that was the very, very beginning of what's become our most profitable acquisition channel and a very meaningful part of the business. Oh, great. How often are you sending catalogs these days? We send about one a month um, or, or every every six weeks or so. And I actually have our next one is coming out next week. And it was Ooh. my favorite one to shoot of all. This was my favorite of all Gorgeous. time. Yes, it's I we have a, a much much better talent <laughs> behind the camera than we did back in the day. It's not my job anymore, um but I love being on on sets and styling shoots and the energy that you create. I think you can feel it on the pages. Yes. Does the catalog drop align with a new product drop? I wouldn't hear about the production cycle seeing again as we're not working with trends. It actually doesn't. We work very slowly. 
our team. So Air Air is, um, I guess we're a, sort of a mid-sized company now, if you look at our revenue, but our team is very small. We're less than 20 people full-time. Oh, wow. That's great. It's a little team. And based in New York, is everyone in New York? Where is everyone? I think at this point, almost nobody's in New York, actually. We yeah. are completely distributed. That's so wild. We all live all over the place. I'm in I'm in Ojai, California, and um, and our team members are truly coast to coast and everywhere in between. That was another change that we made, along with sending catalogs in the pandemic, that we haven't stopped. We never went back to the studio. Same at Glossy. We are remote these days. And have you felt any impacts? Negative impacts. Not a lot of negative impact. We we spend a bit more shipping samples back and forth. And there are moments where I get the impatient itch to be in a fitting and I want to, you know, be together in a space. But for the most part, overwhelmingly positive. It awesome. is wonderful. It gives us so much more freedom and flexibility and autonomy. And it allows us to attract talent that we probably otherwise wouldn't have access to. If we were only able to attract talent within a 25-mile radius, we would probably be living in a city and um, we just wouldn't be able to have the team structure we do. We're able to have such a lean team because uh, the people on the team bring a lot of expertise and um, don't require a lot of management and don't want to spend their time managing. They want to spend their time making things whether right those on. things are spreadsheets or, or pants, you know? So interesting. Yes. I love it. I haven't heard a lot that are um, a lot of fashion brands that are purely remote. It's working. You also said that um, you really didn't want to go the whole DTC, I don't know, route in terms of kind of some of the elements that are very kind of cliche and well-known. However, are you selling direct-to-consumer really exclusively, or um, have have you established many wholesale partners? What's the balance there? We're 99% DTC. Oh, yes. wow. That's have, fantastic. What's that yeah, 1%? Interesting. That 1% is ShopUp because ShopUp offers international shipping and an Amazon checkout and some things that are just really nice services for a consumer. So interesting. Are you finding that, um, first of all, is your entire collection on ShopBop? Are you finding that people are finding you there and coming to the main site? Is there anything fun and interesting happening between that kind of relationship? It's the longest wholesale relationship that we've had. And um, it's been, they've, they've just always been a great and easy partner for us. Their, their buying team decides what assortment they're going to pick up. And sometimes our inventory is pretty tight. That's one of the benefits, but also challenges of running a DTC business is that you can um, achieve very high sell-throughs and really high efficiency in product. You don't have to overproduce to you know, allocate inventory to lots of stores. But sometimes the downside is you don't have enough to get to um, all of the storefronts you'd want to, even if that storefront is another website. Um, but yeah, I think that you, I, I don't know how much credit I can take for strategy in many of these places, the truth is that it's come from um, obstacles. And perhaps if AIR had raised $60 million at some point, I would have, you know, done it all different. I'm sure I would have done it all differently. So it's really been a function of 
working through each obstacle or challenge or opportunity as it's come up and figuring out how do we keep going? How do we achieve healthy growth? And when things, when conditions are favorable, when you do learn something that's like an unlock, how quickly can you apply it and how, how, how it's so exciting to drive growth that way, where it's really earned learnings. You can't, there is no hack for learning for growth, I don't think, other than experience. For sure. I mean, assuming the business, I mean, you have the means and you would, would you be investing in physical retail right now? Is that in the cards for the years ahead? What's your take on it and the importance of it? I love stores. I do. I love retail. I was in New York um, this winter and it was so fun to walk around and, and, and go into, go into different stores and have an experience and have an exchange with a person. I think that they're a terrific way to get to know a brand, especially a brand that is very proud of its product. It's, there's nothing better than touching and feeling the product, trying it on. Um, it speaks for itself. The thing about stores that's tricky is that um, it's just, uh, it's, it won't scale as quickly as digital can. And we still have so much growth and opportunity on the digital front that in a really good week in a store, a really good week, you make what you can make in about an hour and a half online. And it's just so hard to divert investment from that channel when it's growing so quickly to another channel that's going to have uh, probably outsized resources required up front. And it's probably similar in media to the idea of print and digital or print and podcasts and the idea that um, it's a wonderful thing to have. There are so many benefits, but it is capital intensive, labor intensive, and won't have the same reach that the digital media allows us. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. What's working to acquire customers? They're not seeing you on the street. Um, are those catalogs going to maybe half current customers, half prospects? And yeah, where else are you kind of meeting the newbies? Yeah, catalog is absolutely the most profitable acquisition channel for us. And between 20% and a quarter of the people who receive it are existing customers. And the rest are, um, are prospects and um, that channel has been the biggest unlock for us. It's also so fun because in addition to meeting customers, we get to meet like some of our heroes. <laughs> Amelia is, uh, who I mentioned, she worked with us on our very first catalog. Now she's full-time on our team and she is involved in our brand and she is our brand voice. And we like to put little winks in our catalog. Like, you know, I wonder if anybody will see this. And We've mentioned <laughs> we mentioned people that we love, like uh, New York Magazine art critic um, Jerry Saltz. We put him, we mentioned him. We said something in in a little caption, something like Jerry Jerry Saltz liked my tweet. I think we put on a picture of a girl standing in front of maybe a gallery vibe, and she had this awesome outfit, these wool trousers and a cashmere sweater. And she just looked like a cool downtown art scene girl. And he posted on his Instagram, and then. <laughs> 
comments, people sent it to him. And actually in another catalog, um, something similar happened with Nancy Myers, who we're obsessed with. I'm obsessed again, with. Obsessed. She is just, oh, uh, the, everything. Who doesn't love her body of work and her characters and her kitchens? And again, it was like a beautiful cashmere sweater. And we said something like, you know, maybe it belongs in a Nancy Myers kitchen. And she posted it. <laughs> Fantastic. It was so, so, I don't mean, catalogs are great for acquiring customers. They're also great for uh, engaging in pop culture. Yes, you're going viral. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes work not feel like work. It makes it feel a lot more like play. Totally. Oh my, I love that. Nancy Myers. She knows who you are. What a hero. I mean, (laughs) she is on, she is on more than one inspiration board, more than one way for us. We love her. I love that. Well, tell me what else, um, and ter- how else you're considering category expansion. You have men's. I mentioned some accessories that you're doing, but do you see that as kind of the means for growth? What does growth mean and look like for air? Our mantra at the company is healthy growth. And we say it all the time. And it's a very good grounding thing to go back to, especially when you feel pressure and pressure can come from things going slower than you would like, and it can come from things moving quicker than you can handle. And that idea of making sure, but is this healthy growth, is a great place for us to return to. When I was raising money at various points in the company, there would be a lot of conversation about growth versus profitability. And there would be a lot of reference to the hockey stick graph, right? Where it just shows infinite growth upwards to the right. And the truth is that we don't want to choose between growth and profitability. We want to generate self-funded growth that doesn't exceed our capacity to learn and to iterate and, and guarantee a great experience for customers. And at times it has felt like we've needed to accelerate or you know, tap the brakes. So for us, I'm very excited about this next year. We, we actually grew five times since 2020. So it has wow. been, it's been fast. I think fast. Definitely. And, um, and looking back, um, there's so much that we have learned that now we just get to use and I get to be a merchant again. Now that we have an audience, now that we've got a a business, we've got a brand, we have an audience, I get to go back and be a merchant again and live with great product and just think about, dream about how to storytell that product and how to connect with people over it. Oh my gosh. It'll be an exciting year, I'm sure. Go ahead. But to answer your question about product expansion, there's so much opportunity and I'm very excited. You mentioned a few in your intro that are on my mind. I was like, ooh, did we, did she see our inspiration <laughs> parts or our, our on, plans bags. for, for 2024 really... 20, and 25? You want bags? I love hearing that. Yes. Okay. So it sounds like you've maybe been sitting in a few meetings and <laughs> <laughs> you will be the first to know when we have lunch dates and things like that. But we love taking a slow approach to development. And one of the things that I learned in being distributed is how important it is to live with samples and to live with samples at different stages of development. Because if it's not something that you're reaching for over and over and over again, there's no sense. And the world doesn't need more stuff. And and so being in a place where we can be independent and set our own goals, our own timeline, 
and not respond to any external pressure, it really frees us up to be allowed to make things that we find very fulfilling and purposeful and that we feel very proud of. Right on. Tell me about your your consumer, your customer. Um, is she changing, he and she, um, in terms of what they're going for? How's their behavior kind of been flipped on its head during this whole economic craziness? I love our customer because our customer is somebody from the beginning, I think, who is a purposeful and considered consumer. It's a person who has a lot of choice. And so for them to choose... Um, you know, this smaller brand that doesn't have a giant marketing budget and doesn't have billboards and commercials and uh, doesn't do a lot of advertising, it means they're probably somebody who pays a lot of attention. I think of Air as a brand that rewards people who pay attention. And they really think about the materials that they're wearing. They know themselves. They're not chasing every trend. They're probably not defined by a label or a logo And it's probably a person who regards autonomy, independence, spending their time well as the ultimate luxury. They like to have a lot of, uh, I think, choice about how they spend their time. And they don't spend all their time getting dressed in in the morning. So it's a very practical and purposeful customer. And um, our customers are also funny. The brand's voice... um, and it, I, I, it's a job that for many years I had, and then it's a job that um, I was so, so thrilled to meet Amelia and be able to pass it off, pass the torch to her. And she is now the brand voice. And humor is a great filter in life for finding your people. And it's not that different as a brand when we, um, you know, we we sound like like a, a group chat plenty of the times uh, that were they were writing stuff and people who like that are are people. They probably are people who take their work seriously but not themselves and that that definitely speaks to us. I too have been a brand voice. Does your brand's voice have a name? <laughs> we had a name. <laughs> we, I worked for a um we'll just say a department store and I spoke from the voice of Sophie. <laughs> So I have heard of this. I actually have heard of this. And there's all kinds of lore from different companies, personas, you know, matrix with, you know, this quadrants, this person, this girl is beachy and her name is Sandy. That's a made up one. I don't, you know, like that kind of, there are these personas. And no, at, our, <laughs> at air, the brand voice has been Maggie or Amelia. Yes. <laughs> so sometimes it's Bryce. I don't know. Like it's it's just uh, it's just whoever wrote it, and in a, our small team, it doesn't go through a triple filter uh, of being checked and vetted and redlined. It's just usually written moments before it's sent out, and the gut check is: Do we think that that's funny? Great. And that, that's a that's pretty much our process. So we do not have this whole development for better or worse. There is no Sophie at air yet. Maybe I someday. Mean, authenticity, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Oh my gosh. That's right. Well, Maggie, what is is there anything that's really like weighing on your mind? A challenge that you're looking to conquer in the next couple of weeks, couple of months? Um, yeah, top uh, of mind. I think the thing that's most top of mind for me is um, is around the experience of our clothes. 
I had an experience. Um, so I have, I have two sons. One is four years old and one is just nine months. And after maternity leave, to be totally honest, I hadn't, I hadn't, you know, been able to wear our new clothes for a while. It was like, you know, <laughs> tense only at that point. But I, I opened up a box of, of product. I ordered, you know, some things from our website and I put them on and I was stunned by the quality. And that might sound like a humble brag, but it's not. It's kind of a problem because if I was surprised by how nice it was, <laughs> that probably means that there's opportunity on the uh, experience of the product front. And it is, it goes back to your question about stores. It's so hard to have a proxy for touching and feeling beautiful quality. I'm wearing a sweater right now and it's this really beautiful, soft, soft Italian yarn that's machine washable that feels like, oh my gosh, dream cloud spun from like uh, kitten's tears. It's just the sweetest thing in the world. I'm obsessed with this sweater. And I, you can't tell, you couldn't tell from the picture that was on the website that I I looked at those pictures over and over. I'd taken some of these, I cropped these pictures. I'd worked with these images over and over and you couldn't tell how good it was. And so the biggest challenge for me is how do I, um, and how do we as a team honor the quality of the product in its experience? How do we take pictures, write words, create videos or um, interviews or visuals that help educate a consumer about how how thoughtful and and nice the quality is? That's like the biggest biggest challenge for me, and I I, I it's a it's a huge one. So I don't know that we'll solve it all in the next twelve months, but uh, it's definitely going to become it's become our company's focus. I would say. Definitely a challenge. Oh my gosh. Last question. I mean, what else are you excited for this year? You have men's, you have boys at home, maybe kids. Well, we know maybe bags, (laughs) not necessarily new product, but what else is exciting to you moving forward? I think that growing menswear is extremely exciting. Like I said, it's growing even faster than the top line business, which you'd expect to see with a newer part of the business. But I was amazed at how fast it has grown. And we actually, um, the denim in particular, there's a gene that we made quite recently that I'm very excited about that's made of American milled salvage denim. There's one mill left in America that's that's milling uh, um, salvage denim. And that is the quality that we used for our gene. And it's it's just um, getting to work with like great textiles and to slow down um, is very exciting. We're actually pausing on, we're slowing down on our approach to developing things so that we can catch up to the experience of it. And I love that we can do things like that because we aren't um, stuck to a a market or industry or, or calendar or financial pressure that prevents that. So I'm just very excited about some of the products that we have. We have leather, oh my gosh, leather jackets. We have two out in menswear and one coming in womenswear that's phenomenal. We have this great fluffy fleecy Sherpa coming out. So they're textiles that I'm like so, so, so thrilled about. And of course, of course, new jeans. There are two new fits. I've been wear testing them for the last six months and I am just obsessed with them. They're called the roadie and the um, knockout. And they're these two jeans that are like, I'm feeling for, we're feeling for more and more volume uh, on the bottom. And they're so comfortable. So, so 
so fresh feeling. And, you know, we don't do newness terribly often, but when we do, we all get very, very excited about it. <laughs> As you should. Are, are men reading the catalogs? Or I hear the, the value of like a, an athlete or somebody beyond a style influencer that's really um, influencing men. But yeah, what's working for them? Is it the same? Well, I can't say we're going the skims route and hiring. <laughs> we don't really have, have those resources. So we don't have a whole bunch of uh, spokesmodels or athletes sponsoring the, um, the, the product. But what we do have, we, what we have had is really great industry support. So like kind of like inside, inside, um, inside baseball type validation. Um, we love the Substack of Continuous Lean. That's some, a place we look for like style inspiration and um, uh, my husband, Bryce, actually is our menswear designer. And oh, awesome. he, he, um, he was so excited. A friend sent him um, a, a piece that Michael Williams recently wrote, actually, about um, Ayers jeans um, and recommending them. And so we've gotten these kind of very, to us, very influential, very kind of respected, earned, you know, that, that kind of validation. And that has felt very meaningful. It's kind of like that big Oprah moment years ago that was so phenomenal. Whether it's loud or quiet, ex that kind of validation of people finding you and reinforcing it keeps you going in so many ways. It's, like I said, making things is hard and getting to do it with great company and having fun along the ride is um, is just the best. It's the best. Yes. And yeah, so for us, I think that's very encouraging hearing the response. It, it keeps us uh, very motivated and, and creative and it makes us want to keep doing this for a long time. The brand is called All Year Round and that's the goal is to exist for a really long time. Right on. Oh my, as you're speaking, I'm like, ding, ding. I forgot that I've heard Air mentioned by from an industry type of a guy, like on retail therapy, his name's Will. He talks about it. He likes it. He loves it. Anyway, <laughs> you're doing oh my something goodness. right. You'll have That's to listen. That's great to hear. I will. I. It's so easy, especially in this distributed world to, you know, just like, I think of us as being in our own little corner of the sandbox, doing what's fun for us. And we're so happy to, and we're so happy for people to join us. That is like just the best thing in the world. Right on. Well, excited to follow you from here. Thank you for staying extra long. It was so valuable. I, I could keep you. talking. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maggie, for being here. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.